If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. We are several weeks into this series in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And if you haven't been with us, let me just catch you up very, very quickly. We started out uh, in Philippians looking at sort of the big purposes for the letter, that Paul's desire that this church would be real and genuine, and in fact his acknowledgement that they are real and genuine partners in the gospel, that they've shown radical hospitality, that they've radically been generous with their finances, and that they have given themselves to the truth of the gospel and their personal character and decisions. And Paul's saying, now do it even, even more. And so he's calling them on the basis of the example of Jesus to to live a life of great perspective, to see that in death or in life, all of these things can be used for the glory of God and for the purpose of God. And so while living, if we would be a unified people, he's asking them, there are some uh, spats or disagreements that are certainly going on uh, in the church at Philippi. We hear about them a little bit in the beginning of chapter 4. And Paul's heart is that they would be unified uh, so that the gospel can go forward. And he says that this happens uh, singularly, truly, through humility. That is, that one person can disrupt this whole corporate reality of unity by moving in their own direction. And so this morning, uh, we're looking in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Uh, we'll find our way all the way to the end of the chapter, but really concentrating on these first couple of paragraphs here. And I want to read it to you. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So in this, Paul somewhat famously says to the Philippian church, you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is a very tricky little passage of Scripture to understand because it can lead us in a bunch of different ways that are actually divergent from the true meaning. We have to really focus on the context to figure out what's going on here. So let's talk about a couple of things that we we can exclude from being a meaning of work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We can exclude the fact that Paul is angry at them, right? Paul's not yelling at them. He's not furious with them. He is not a dad who's been waiting up for his teenage son or daughter well past curfew that has something to say that's going to end up in punishment. We know this because Paul in the first part of this letter has talked glowingly about this church, how much he loves them, how much there's no one else like them uh, in all the churches he ministered to. They kind of are the apple of his eye in many ways. So we can exclude sort of this angry, sort of judgmental tone to this. The second thing that we can exclude is this is not a message about sort of 
earning God's affection. Some people would look at this and say, okay, so to get salvation, I've got to work at it. I've got to work it out. I've got to prove myself worthy of the salvation. I do it with fear and trembling because there's an angry God out there who I better please him, otherwise I'm not going to meet the standards. But we can rule out that interpretation too because in the first chapter, Paul very clearly says to them, hey, he who has begun a good thing in you is going to see it through to completion. And Paul says he is persuaded of this. So Paul knows the seriousness and the realness of their faith. There's no question in Paul's mind that they've got to do something like this. Moreover, Paul in all of his letters, and really we can see this all through Jesus' teaching, all through the New Testament, the reality that we cannot earn God's favor. That we cannot prove ourselves to God. And that our task is not to attain some level of holiness so that God will then allow us to experience salvation. Rather, our goal is to realize just how broken we are so that we can embrace the salvation that he offers us through Jesus' work on the cross. So work out your salvation is not an angry Paul or an angry God saying, you better get your act together. And it is not um, a concerned Paul or a judgmental God saying, listen, you better get, get your stuff straight or else you may not attain this level of living, this level of holiness, this level of salvation. So then what is he saying? Well, context will tell us that what he's saying is salvation is something that we need to radically apply to our lives. Salvation is something that we need to, in his words, work out. That we need to continue to flesh it out, to make sense of it, to to make it be part of every aspect of our lives. When uh, Rach and I were engaged and getting ready um, to be married, uh, we would spend time talking with her parents, and uh, they were wonderfully wise people. And I remember one of the things that her dad uh, said to us, and I remember like bristling at it in the moment, thinking, what do you know, right? Can you imagine that, a 23-year-old guy telling another. So anyway, he, he, he's, he said to us, you guys think that you know what love is. You think that you know what it means to love each other. And I thought, no, I, yeah, you're right, I do. I know what love is. He said, but, but many years from now, if you uh, lean into the truth of, of love, you will really know what it means to love one another. And all these years later, I can look back and say, man, he was actually completely right. That way more now than then, I know what it means to love, and I'm experiencing love from Rachel in a more profound way, and I hopefully am offering love to her in a more profound way. What's the point of this example? I think Paul is saying the same thing about the gospel. about salvation, that it is, yes, it is true of you. You are, you have experienced salvation. God has rescued you through the work of Jesus. Now live into it. Figure out what it means. Figure out how it changes who you are in every aspect of your being. This is why Paul would write to the the Roman, the church at Rome, uh, very famously in Romans chapter 12, listen, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. 
And up to that point, he spent this whole time talking to a church that had believed the gospel already for 11 chapters about the truth of the gospel. Why? Because we renew our mind through the gospel. And as the gospel continues to be applied to all the new realities of our lives and to the deeper aspects of who we are, it transforms us and moves us from being conformed to this world. Paul is saying the same thing in different words to the church at Philippi. Listen, you are children of God. Now keep figuring out what that means. Keep applying it to every aspect of your life. Guess what, church at Philippi? It matters in your relationships with each other that you are children of God. Figure out what that means. It matters in how you relate to the world around you. It matters in conducts and in, in practices of business and in, in conducts in society. It matters in every aspect of who we are. And so we need to be radically committed to constantly push, pushing the gospel deeper into our heart so that it is applied to every aspect of our life. If we zoom out just a little bit from the statement, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we see that Paul has contextually placed it in this dialogue about obedience. Paul says, listen, just as you have obeyed when I was present, now in my absence, even more, he's calling them as he constantly does, deeper, deeper, deeper into this reality of being sons and daughters of God because of Jesus' work on the cross for them. That we would be people who are known by obedience, or as Paul said at the end of chapter 1, people who live a life worthy of the gospel. And Paul says that it is God who is working this in our actions and in our will. Once again, in classic Paul way, saying this is about God's power and our effort. The power of God through the gospel and the spirit of God moving the gospel deeper into us in our effort in faith to believe the gospel in every aspect of our life, making us more and more into the people we've crea- we have been created to be. So that we are not just sort of by name only children of God, but that we begin to in every way look like sons and daughters of God. So if this is true, then we have to ask the question, then how? How do we lean into this kind of deep commitment to obedience, as Paul calls it, to working out our salvation, to living a life worthy of the gospel? And I would suggest to you, Paul's offering us very, one very central answer, but kind of nuancing it in a few ways. And the central answer is this idea of gratitude. Being people who are characterized by gratitude. People who are radically characterized by gratitude. Let me make a statement here, and hopefully in the next several minutes we'll flesh it out. Obedience does not precede love. Love precedes obedience. For those of you who have grown up in the church and have kind of ingested a lot of religion, we've heard it the other way. You obey, you obey, you obey, and that's how you show that you love God. But it's actually the backwards truth of the gospel. The gospel says that we become so enamored with God that it changes who we are and obedience springs out of it. God's power, our effort. 
that in our love for God, we become obedient people. Not that in our efforts to be obedient, we learn how to love God. So a few things here in working this out. The first thing that I think Paul is suggesting is a a posture of gratitude, if we can say it that way. Maybe a, a posture of submission is a better way. Paul has just finished, you might remember, this this poem that either he has coined or was a a sort of famous poem of the church, a kind of an early creed of the church, many scholars think. He said that Jesus took on the form of a slave, and not just a slave, but he was obedient to the point of death, and death on a cross, and it says, so that he might be exalted to the highest place. And at the name of Jesus, every tongue would confess and every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the ends of the earth. And then he says, therefore, just as you have always been obedient, be obedient that much more. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. First way that we lean into this idea of obedience, of following Jesus in an even deeper way of working out our salvation. is a, It's a posture of submission, of being willing to be part of the conglomerate that takes a knee at the name of Jesus, that confesses with our tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know what that means, right? If Jesus is Lord, that means you are you're not, right? It also means a whole myriad of things are not Lord. Your spouse is not Lord. Kids are not Lord. Your parents are not Lord. Your, your education is not Lord. The president is not Lord. The empire is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord is a very definitive statement that defines us in every aspect of it. Paul says we act and, and we place ourselves in submission to Christ. And he says we do it with fear and trembling. Now here's a crazy phrase, right? What does this mean? I don't think that Paul is talking sort of about shaking in our boots and being terrified. The word fear and trembling in the Greek translation of the Old Testament really shows up a lot around the Exodus. And what we'll find here in the next few minutes is that the Exodus story is a driving narrative in this passage of Scripture. And what we see in that is that God should be, should be followed with fear and trembling because he is the one that brought down plagues on Egypt and that rescued his people in a great and mighty way and that called them through the Red Sea and that moved them into the land of their blessing. This is the God who we follow. It's a word that speaks more about a posture of submission than it does to an actual sort of being terrified and scared. When I might suggest to you is what Paul is kind of getting at here is sort of being reverently enamored with God. Being in love with him and in awe of him. That he could do that and that he did it for you. That he's rescued you, that he's called you to his own, that he's opened up all of the blessings of the heavens for you. Paul uses the word, the phrase fear and trembling in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says, listen, when I came to you to preach to you, Corinthians, I didn't come with any kind of pomp and circumstance. I didn't have have especially creative sermons. I didn't have wonderful figures of speech. I just came to you in fear and trembling, preaching Christ and him crucified. What is Paul saying? Hey, when I came to you, it was never about me. 
It was always about Jesus. Paul came in a submissive manner that Jesus would be glorified, that Jesus would be king. If you have a desire to go deeper in your commitment to Christ, if you have a desire to be more obedient, to follow Paul's command, to keep working out your salvation, might I suggest to you the first thing that you consider is what is your posture towards God? Do you align your life? Do you align your day around the agenda of yourself or the agenda of King Jesus? This is what Paul is getting at to the church of Philippi, saying, listen, if you order yourself in submission to Christ, obedience follows right behind it. If you truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he says he's done, then the only thing you can do in light of his valor and his great victory on the cross and his love and mercy in doing it for you, as Paul would later say to the Romans, is what? To offer yourself as a living and holy sacrifice. Paul says this is the only acceptable response to the gospel. We order ourselves secondary to Christ. So how do you look at your life? Our posture matters in pursuing obedience. Then Paul jumps right into this this segment where he says, stop grumbling and arguing. And he sounds like parents talking to little kids, right? So if if you're a parent or if you're an uncle or if you're a grandparent, you kind of know this stop grumbling thing. And then sometimes if you zoom out, you realize, man, I should be saying that to myself more than I say it to everyone else. Paul loves to tell churches to stop grumbling. Why? Because it is a universal human problem. Right? Do you get that? It's not unique to Philippi, just like it wasn't unique to Corinth or to to, to Galatia or any of these other places. It happens here, it happens there, it happens everywhere. It's part of the human existence to be grumblers. Why? Because we struggle with perspective. We struggle with perspective. The same way we struggle with posture, we struggle with perspective. What Paul is doing is drawing their attention squarely to the wilderness generation in the Exodus story. You might be familiar with this. God has acted miraculously on behalf of the Israelites. He has brought down plagues on Egypt. He has, he has set the people of Israel free from slavery in Egypt. He has rescued them from a pursuing army. He has miraculously led them, and then they've won battles, and they find themselves in this in-between space on their way to the land that he has promised them. And as they're, as they're moving in the wilderness, God is supernaturally providing for all of their needs. He's he's supernaturally, supernaturally, miraculously providing them water. He's providing them food, quail. He's providing them manna. And after a while, this kind of gets old for the Israelites, right? I once was at a conference in Memphis, and I went to tour uh, Graceland. You ever been to Graceland before? It's a a very crazy place. I'm not sure I would recommend you going there. It's almost almost depressing. at Graceland, every room is, is in a crazy 70s motif, and then there's a bunch of people out back either crying that Elvis is dead or 
insisting that he's not dead. Right? It's, a, it's a weird place. Here's my takeaway from my visit to Graceland. Elvis one time ate meatloaf for dinner for two straight months, every single night. He was a weird, strange creature of habit. For most of you, you're thinking, oh, now imagine if it was quail and crazy, miraculous crackers that you had to pick up after the morning dew every morning. And we put ourselves in the Israelites' shoes, and we realize we would be a lot like them, wouldn't we? And we would be people who are very quick to complain. That our life isn't as easy as we would like it to be. Yeah, God, I know you rescued us from slavery. And I remember that time you parted that water and we walked through it and you destroyed the greatest army of the age. And you, supernaturally, we won battles. How is that even possible? And we're hungry, but yet you're providing for us at every step. But could, you, could we change the menu? Could you give us something a little more appetizing? Could we maybe not have to collect it every morning? Right? And it's very easy for us to sit in judgment on that generation thinking, you idiots, look at what God did for you. And yet you live like this. Now zoom out for a minute, church. I ask you, what has God done for you? And yet, is there a day that passes without you grumbling? It's not for me. And I happen to think I'm a pretty optimistic person, and yet I find myself grumbling at the strangest times. Rachel and I were watching On Demand, right? Imagine this. We can watch On Demand. We can watch a show whenever we want. And it was flickering because there's, like, there's this massive snowstorm or something happening outside. <laughs> Rach can tell you, I was so angry. I was like, well, that's it. We're just not going to watch this anymore, right? Here I am. I, can, I can, can watch and pause and move all these things. And other people are without, I'm finding out other people are without power. We never lost power. I was watching on demand while you were struggling without power. And I was grumbling about it because there were little flickers and pauses in it, right? This is because we have bad perspective, don't we? We are more defined by the now than by God's rescue of us. And that is to our shame. Paul says, listen, stop grumbling. Not because he's asking them to be perfect and always be so happy every time everything bad happens to them. But he wants them to see what happened to that generation in the wilderness. How easy it is to get off track on simple, stupid stuff. A generation that became so overcome by their circumstances that they demanded that God let them go back to slavery. And they ultimately never experienced the full blessing that God promised them. It starts with grumbling. God, we're tired of the manna. We're tired of the quail. Can you do something better for us? Paul loves this example because it shows just how easy it is to get off track. How simple it is for the train of our lives to be derailed because of our perspective. Because we are so consumed with the now that we lose sight of the big thing that God has and is doing 
in our lives. Church, we live in a wilderness kind of reality, don't we? Jesus has come. On the cross, when he said, it is finished, he meant it. Sin was dealt with once and for all. In his resurrection, God said loud and clear, accepted, loan approved, whatever you want to say. This deal that Jesus has struck for all of humanity, God says, accepted. It's good. That's what the resurrection means. The salvation is assured for us who would believe in it. But we're on this strange journey to the full experience of the full life that God promises us. We taste it in parts now. We get some quail and some manna. And we've seen the salvation and we know where we're heading. But yet we're not fully there. We live in this broken world. And we go through pain and we go through struggle. And we see these things in living color. I want to tell you, Paul is not telling you to simply coax up a fake smile and say, thanks, Jesus. He's saying, lift your eyes to the bigger picture. I get it. Can I, can I just be frank with you? I get it. It sucks right now. This is not how it should be. But I am taking you to the, the place where everything is as it should be. And because of the certainty of my rescue, you can be sure and certain of the final destination. So Paul, when he says, don't grumble, he's not like, could you stop complaining about the on-demand, Adam? He's saying, listen, every time you are tempted to focus on the struggle of the now, lift your eyes. Remember what God has done. Remember where he is taking you and be certain that it will happen. And so you eat that manna and you remember that even as dry as the wilderness can be sometimes, God gives you water every day. The God who rescued them from Egypt didn't say, I'll meet you in the promised land. He walked with them. Meeting their every needs. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, God, give us our daily manna. Right? Why? Because it's hard in the wilderness sometimes. If you want to be people who are defined by obedience, people who are marked by the gospel, who are learning to work out, to apply the gospel in every aspect of life, we need to have a different kind of perspective. A perspective that says we are not going to be defined by the now. But we will be defined by our rescue and our king. And when that kind of grat- that attitude of gratitude, that kind of that aura of gratitude happens in our lives, suddenly we lean harder in to what it means to follow Jesus. Because we believe he has led us to this place, and we believe he's taking us step by step to the better life. That's what Paul's saying. It's not like, guys, get over yourselves already. Stop grumbling. And God's angry with you. You've worked this out with fear and trembling. No, he's saying, God is with you. 
I get it. It's hard. Keep after it. Lift your eyes up. So as followers of Jesus, we need to be committed to having a gospel antidote to grumbling. Right? And what is it? Paul says it's the word rejoice. He uses it here. He uses it in chapter 1. He's going to go crazy on it in chapter 4. The word rejoice shows up in Philippians more than anywhere else. Paul's writing it from a prison cell. Right? What's going on? He's given himself gospel reminders, I think. Every once in a while he looks down when he's writing this letter. I'm in, I'm in prison. Rejoice. What's he saying? I'm going to lift my eyes up. I'm going to lift my eyes up. There's a bigger thing going on here. But I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to believe the gospel. I'm going to go deeper. Many of us have been taught that we will find the fullness of life when we can be happy. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Happiness is fleeting. I've experienced it and I've lost it. Joy does not leave because it is a choice. You can't choose to be happy, right? How do you choose to be happy in the wilderness? How do you choose to be happy in prison? You're just being dishonest with yourself. It's hard. Be honest about your emotions. But you can choose joy. Why? Because you lift your eyes and you see the bigger picture. God has rescued me from certain death. And he has promised me the full bounty of life. And I'm tasting it in part now. And I need more of it. I need more of it. I need more of it. And so I will be defined more by my king who has rescued me than by my circumstances that want to define me now. The pursuit of happiness is a dead end road. Stop pursuing happiness and start being grateful that there was a God who loved you so much that he found you in an inescapable pit of death. And he brought you home. And he washed you up. And that he gave you clothes. And that he set you on the right path. And said, it's going to be hard. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Right? But take heart. I have overcome this world. Paul says, don't grumble. If work out your salvation is this idea of obedience that comes from a, a, a continual application of the gospel to our lives, and if we lean into it by, by perspective and by posture, which I, th- I think this is right, then we ask ourselves the question, well, why? What is this all about anyway? And what does Paul say in that last paragraph that we read? He says, there's two things, two answers to the why question. The first answer is for God's glory, right? Paul says this is, God has done this for his good pleasure, right? In the NIV, it says for his good purpose. That somehow, and Jim talked about this, it was either last week or two weeks ago, somehow in this mess, we have the opportunity to glorify God. And if you want to say, well, how can that be possible? Then you have to ask yourself the question, how is it possible that Jesus glorified God on the cross? And why did Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me? Just because he said he's going to be a hard life? No, because if we choose to live as people marked by gratitude, as people committed to following Jesus, 
in the difficulty of the wilderness, carrying our cross as you were, we have this unique opportunity to proclaim to the world around us that there is a different way, that there is a different path, that there is a king who has announced rescue to the whole world, that these claims that Jesus made are true, and that we can present to them tastes of this new kingdom that Jesus is bringing. This is why Paul says what? When you do this, he says you will be blameless and pure, right? Because of our standing in Christ. He says, and you will shine like stars in a corrupt and crooked world. Now, fascinating imagery going on here, right? I think he's, he's hearkening all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. When God says to Abraham, hey, your descendants are going to number the stars in the sky, right? So there will be a generation. Your children will be a generation. He says, Paul says, now, hey, we're children of God shining like stars in the sky. You tell me. What is he trying to paint here? He says, this has been God's plan all along from the very beginning. And when you do it, when you choose to worship me and bring glory to me, even in the midst of your struggle, you will uniquely shine in a dark, corrupt world. When you pursue joy rather than happiness, you shine. When you are defined by your rescue more than your circumstances, you shine. When you are marked more by gratitude than by grumbling, you shine. We are people who are given to glorifying God no matter what. And we understand the holistic reality of glorifying God, right? That glorifying God is not just something we do on Sundays, and it's not just something we do with our mouths, Right, that those Sunday and mouths, that's like 2%. And the other 98% is how you live your life. That's how you glorify God. That our conduct, that our choices, that our behavior, that our attitudes are never about making sure God's happy with us. It's more about reflecting to the world around us who God is and that the rescue and restoration of this world is underway because of Jesus. John Piper says, listen, mission is not our purpose. We might say, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. How can he say something like that? He says, worship is actually our purpose. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Catch that? But the whole reason we're called into the world is because there's a world that is not worshiping God. And that the greatest way we can call them to God is being people who in our whole being, not just on Sundays and not just with our mouths, are defined by worshiping God. To a church that is hitting a home run in their pursuit of Christ, Paul says, there's more. There's more. You can go deeper. There's a radical kind of obedience that takes the gospel from our heads and pushes it deep into our hearts and allows it to change every part of our lives. It says the gospel and King Jesus has has control of every aspect of who I am. And you do it by taking a posture of submission to King Jesus and gaining a perspective that defines us by our rescue rather than our circumstances. 
so that God can be glorified. And so that this world that is desperately looking for the right path, for restoration, for shalom, for wholeness, can begin to taste it from us. Can I tell you something? You are the manna for the world. You are the water in a dry and arid world. You are the miraculous quail that sustains. You are God's instrument of provision so that rescue can continue and more can experience the life that God calls us to. That's why Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The work, it is not done. Is it hard in this world? It's really hard. And unfortunately for some, it's way harder than for others. But Paul says, rejoice. Lift your eyes and see the bigger picture. Can I pray with you?